This program is brought to you by Emory University. Uh, we are privileged to have before us today for uh, Dean's lecture for this month, uh, Professor Lewis Ayers, uh, who has taught at Trinity College Dublin, Duke <laughs> Divinity School, and of course for many years here at Candler School of Theology. He's currently Professor of Catholic and Historical Theology at Durham University, where he has uh, served since 2009. As uh, many of you know, the core of Professor Ayer's research has been Trinitarian theology and Augustine and the fourth century Greek fathers. On this theme, he has published numerous articles and two major monographs, Nicaea and its Legacy, an Approach to Fourth Century Trinitarian Theology from Oxford University Press, and most recently, Augustine and the Trinity, published by Cambridge in 2010. His current research concerns the development of early Christian exegesis, uh, in the late second and early third centuries, and it is from this work that the material for today's lecture comes on the topic, Inventing Christianities, Gnosticism, and the Remodeling of the Second Century. Please join me in welcoming Professor Ayers. Thank you, Ian. Um, I, I should begin by saying um, I do not know enough to give this uh, lecture. Um, most of it consists of rather vague speculation. Um, what I'm, I'm currently writing a book on uh, exegesis at the end of the second and the beginning of the third century, but uh, I like a good argument, and so I've decided to have something to say about how we talk about continuity across the second century. Um, and what I'm doing today is to summarize 20,000 words of draft speculation for a chapter uh, into a 40-minute talk, so expect very little, please. The, the second century of the Christian era has been the subject of intense scholarly attention and dispute for hundreds of years. Why? In part, simply because of the shifts that occur within it. By the end of the first century, one version of the story might go. We have most of the key texts that will be incorporated into the New Testament. We have texts that show us Christianity in some of its earliest forms. We see their inchoate models of ecclesial structure and very brief forms of Christian confession. But by the end of the second century, our sources show us a widespread Christian community scattered through the Mediterranean basin, deeply concerned with establishing and maintaining right belief against a multitude of heresies, concerns that are particularly important, for example, in writers such as Irenaeus or Tertullian. The model of a single bishop exercising rule over a Christian community seems also by then to have taken hold across the Christian world, and each bishop seems to have seen himself as the protector of a faith that had originally been expressed by the apostles. We also see quasi-creedal statements, the rules of faith, sharp polemical rhetoric, and complex forms of theological writing, commentaries, apologies, etc., if the story can be told like this, then it is probably clear why this century has been of such interest. Can Christian belief and the Christian community at the end of the second century really be thought continuous with that at the end of the first century? If it cannot, how does this affect modern Christian perceptions of continuity with biblical Christianity? But the other main reason why the second century has been of such interest and the reason disputes over the second century are so intense in our day is that some scholars have suggested that Christianity during this century is best spoken of as a plurality of Christianities, as a range of responses to Jesus 
far more diverse than you would ever sense from the writings of an Irenaeus or a Tertullian. In the words of Bart Ehrman, scholarly investigation finds in this century a range of lost Christianities. Of particular interest to these scholars have been the groups frequently drawn together under the name Gnostic, although, of course, this name has been increasingly questioned in recent writing. These groups produced complex mythologies and often distinguished between the God who created the cosmos and the God who sent Jesus. Many seem to have seen themselves as an elite within broader Christian communities. Others made use of Christian and Jewish symbolism, but seem to have formed quite distinct groups with distinct ritual practices and organizations. If all of these groups should simply be named Christian, then we may sketch a set of many Christianities, from which we might say one gradually rose to dominance, although always a disputed dominance, and that one came to present itself as the single guardian of an invented apostolic orthodoxy. One more step needs to be noted. For these scholars, if we are to focus our attention successfully on this diversity in the second century, then we should simply avoid any attempt to judge which of these various groups could best claim a relationship to Christianity in its original form or forms. For the Harvard scholar Karen King, for example, such a search for origins and genealogy is a dangerous seduction away from respecting this plurality. It inevitably leads us back into the categories of earlier heresy hunting. My aim in this talk is simple, if ridiculously ambitious. I will argue that when we narrate the development of Christian belief between the late 1st and early 3rd centuries, we can legitimately begin by emphasizing fundamental continuities between the beliefs expressed in our earliest Christian texts, say in the period between 60 and 120, and those found in the period between 180 and 220, a period which includes writers such as Irenaeus and Tertullian. This is so even if we are also appreciatives of the great shifts in Christian culture that took place during the period, and even if we are attentive to the complex diversity of expressions we find within the second century. I'm not trying to offer a comprehensive typology of the various forms of Christian expression in this century. I don't actually think that is possible, nor am I expending any great effort on the very complex questions of which religious groups of the period should be called Christian or not, although I will come back to this in my final remarks. I am only trying to identify and defend a particular story of continuity through the century and then ask how beginning from this point might shape our approach to the century as a whole. But before I get to the meat of my argument, I need to take a moment to make a simple but fundamental point about the claim that we should avoid attempts to make historical judgments about continuity between any of the second century Christianities and the texts of earliest Christianity. It seems to me that avoiding any talk of origins only made much sense when there were many scholars who believed that a complex form of Gnosticism existed before or at the same time as the earliest Christian community. One of the reasons that scholars came to present the second century as a panorama of multiple Christianities was because they believed that our evidence enabled us to speak of complex Gnostic myths being, in, as it were, in the air as Christian beliefs first achieved clear expression. 
If this were so, then it made sense to see those in the second century who expressed such myths as equally deserving of the name Christian as an Irenaeus or a Tertullian. The logic in that sort of argument seems to me pretty strong. But scholars who think that complex Gnostic myths were actually in the air in the mid to late first century are now very rare on the ground, and for two very good reasons. First, while we have evidence that enables us to speak with some certainty about Jewish apocalyptic and mystical traditions and about popular Platonic traditions, traditions that do seem to have been incorporated into later mythical structures, and while we can certainly identify hints of speculation amongst first-century Christians that, again, were incorporated into more complex second- and third-century systems, the vast majority of scholars are agreed that we have no strong evidence that later complex forms of Gnostic mythology existed at the end of the first century. The second reason is the sense of development that we seem now to be able to trace in a number of the movements that would eventually be deemed heterodox. Thus, particularly clearly, examining the relationship between Valentinus and his later followers over the course of the second century seems to show clear development from the early mid-second century toward more complex mythological speculations at the end of the century. Now, it is, of course, difficult to offer any global comment along these lines because of our limited ability to identify the history of such traditions. But the weight of evidence suggests, I think, that while Christianity certainly began in a context that was replete with possible tracks for cosmological speculation, the complex mythological structures apparent in so many later texts called Gnostic represents a development post-dating the first couple of Christian generations and continuing through the course of the second century. If this is so, then it is an odd time to suggest that we should avoid all questions of origin and continuity. This rather simple point seems to me of vital importance for how we attempt any narration of the second century. And so, finally, I come to my argument proper. But caution is important here. Even if, in principle, we can and should undertake a historical investigation of the development of Christian belief during the second century, how should it be conducted? How can we find a way to explore this development other than in piecemeal fashion, other than looking at the development of a particular idea or institution, for example? And how can we think intelligently about both diversity and continuity? What tools can we use? In a move that surprises me, let alone those who've read anything else I've previously written, I want to suggest, I want to begin by suggesting some theoretical resources that can better enable us to think about the complexities of the story we must tell. In recent years, the most theoretically inclined scholars of the period have focused their attentions on tools for uncovering diversities and subversion hidden in the rhetoric of such figures as Irenaeus and Tertullian. But these scholars have spent very little time suggesting which theoretical tools might help us best to understand the complex changes that Christianity undergoes in the period. As a contribution to this theoretical discussion, I want to spend a few moments suggesting that the concept of discursive space may be useful. In Anglo-American theory, the notion of a discursive space seems to have become extensively popular in the late 60s 
in connection with discussing emergent discursive spaces among minority communities. Now, to understand what was meant by a discursive space, we can begin by seeing how the phrase describes two inseparable dimensions. In the first place, to speak of a discursive space is to speak of a conversation or a set of conversations at a conceptual level, at the level of subjects discussed and vocabularies or conceptual traditions used in conversations. Within a discursive space, conceived thus, particular points of constant discussion and or disagreement are apparent, as well as others emergent or disappearing over time. In this sense, the term discursive space was used to analyze the character and structure of conversation, the topics of conversation, that emerged in communities beginning to shape their own new conversations within an existing dominant cultural context. But in the second place, a discursive space is also a particular social space for discourse, a space that is opened by the forming of particular relationships and institutional structures that foster and shape discussion at the first level identified. In the case of emergent minority communities, to speak of discursive space was to identify the institutions that promoted the growth of a new cultural identity, the networks and relationships that encourage and shape discussion. The relationship between these two dimensions is, however, not merely that of discourse and the environment that makes it possible, because the social structure of a discursive space, the character of the institutions and relationships that have grown up to foster a discourse, also shape that discourse, sustaining some aspects while suppressing others. Social structures exercise a significant role on the development and shape of ideas. Allow me to make two further observations about the notion of discursive space. The first may be obvious to many, but it is important enough to demand distinct acknowledgement. Because of the emphasis in this theoretical discussion on the emergence of discursive spaces, they are also, in the words of Talal Asad, discursive traditions. The second should also be fairly obvious, especially to anyone who's done a little reading around in this theoretical literature. To talk about the interaction of conceptual and social space is, at the very least, to make assumptions about the nature of power in such spaces. And yet, take a breath before you get too excited. As you might expect in a theoretical discussion that has drawn on such quite distinct figures as Habermas, Foucault, and McIntyre, power here is acknowledged as a cultural reality, but its character is the subject of very different analyses. For many of those who've explored this language, the ability to shape powerful institutions has been a great good, enabling emergent discursive spaces to hold their own against larger cultural forces. The exercise of power certainly may suppress and control, but it may also promote and encourage. The complex nature of power in discursive spaces actually provides us, I think, with very useful resources for understanding and thinking through the development of Christianity in this period. Let me conclude these purely theoretical remarks by observing that I've turned to the notion of a discursive space largely because something like it has been at play in a number of recent and significant works on second century. Let me give you one brief example. Almost 30 years ago, the great French scholar Alain Le Boulouec uh, offered us an account of the emergence of discourse of the dis sorry, offered us an account of the emergence of the discourse of heresy and orthodoxy during the late second century that I think has become a classic. 
At the heart of his work in this book and subsequent essays is the assumption that if we want to understand developments during the second half of the second century, we have to note our particular manner of distinguishing right and wrong belief is developed both conceptually and institutionally. A language for distinguishing develops alongside tools for summarizing right faith and alongside notions of canon and alongside developments in the understanding of the duties and powers of bishops as guardians of orthodoxy. Whether or not one agrees with all of his analysis, and I don't, the approach is immensely fruitful, and much may be gained, I think, from naming a little more his theoretical assumptions. Now, this is but one example, but I think there are two or three others you might question me about. And thus, the theoretical resources that I've noted here build on assumptions apparent in some of the most interesting scholarly treatments of the period, um, although the concept itself is rarely named. I want now to use this notion of discursive space to think about the ways in which we might consider continuity and change between two of the forms that Christianity takes in this period. Obviously enough, once again, I do not have the time, or the knowledge, to sketch anything like a complete vision of the discursive space of Christianity at the turn of the second century. And I don't think our, our evidence enables us to do so anyway. But I do think we can suggest a couple of vital features within that discursive space, conceptual and institutional. To do so, I'm going to expand on some observations first offered in a 1989 essay by Rowan Williams. The essay entitled, Does It Make Sense to Speak of Pre-Nicene Orthodoxy, deserves a lot more comment than I think it has received. At the heart of the piece, Williams suggests that a common feature of our earliest Christian texts and of communities that coalesce into what some have termed proto-orthodoxy is a very particular concern with the relationship of believers to the story of Jesus. Williams suggests, quote, that the canonical narrative tradition gives priority to the task of bringing the believer into dramatic relationship with the subject of the story, offering the believer a place within the story itself. The addressee of the words uttered in the narrative past is the hearer in the actual present. Williams is also suggesting that there is already a key concern for an actual past, for a set of actual events, and our historical relationship to them then becomes central. Now, Williams' presentation is both brief and very formal, attempting to highlight something that he takes to be true at both ends of the period I want to consider. Taking Williams' observation as a guide, let me try and fill out this suggestion by looking at the ways in which conversations within some sections of the Christian community take actual form, the ways in which they're embedded in discursive space. Let me begin, then, with the earlier of my two periods, that between about 60 and 120. We must begin by calling to mind one aspect of our earliest Christian texts, something that recent scholarship has rendered particularly familiar. And so this, again, may be just blindingly obvious. The fundamental assumption that because Christ fulfills Israel's prophecy... That corpus of texts, and prophecy, of course, being understood very widely, provides central conceptual resources for exploring the meaning of Christ's ministry. Whether we look to the direct statements of Peter's speech in Acts 2, the placing of Psalm 22 in the mouth of the crucified Christ, or the soldiers casting lots for his clothes in John 19, we do not see 
Uh, we do not have simply an attempt to validate Christ's actions by reference to pre-existing prophecy, but we see a use of Jewish scriptural texts to explore the meaning of Christ's actions. These texts taken together show the centrality of a debate about the relationship of Christ to Israel, one which could encompass a variety of positions from the strongly supersessionists to those that treated God's covenant with Israel as unbroken. But within a debate, within this argument, the assumption that Christ fulfills Israel's prophecy and that his mission can only be understood as culminating uh, Israel's history remains central. These observations should be simply uncontroversial, but they are important because they point us to the context, to the language and imagery within which William's conception of the earliest canonical narrative form takes actual discursive shape. Different authors and perhaps different traditions within this earliest Christian discursive space use images, terminologies and themes from Israel's scripture and speculative thought world to create narratives that link, in the first place, Christ's work with the act of creation, and in the second place, Christ's work with the contemporary Christian community. They create a network of references that speak of Christ's role in creation and his continued presence toward the eschaton. Allow me to give two rather obvious brief examples. Call to mind first some themes from Hebrews. An initial exegetical discussion locates the unique son as the creator designated by God and worshipped by the angels. Because the son is the one through whom and by whom all things exist, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have all one origin. The other side of the narrative frame is then formed from the promise that we might eventually enter into his, Christ's, rest. We who strive between these two sides of the narrative frame are the Israelites in the desert, but the Israelites with a perfected priest who has entered once and for all. And yet because he also shared all that is human, and because God continues to work through him in us, we live toward that rest in faith. The narrative structure here is one that relates Christians to Christ by emphasizing both our status as believers who treat his story as pivotal, and by emphasizing the continuing work of Christ among us. In one sense, we are subsequent to Christ's determinative actions and prior to our ultimate rest, but in another sense, this time is defined by Christ's continuing work, although it's known only in faith. There are many parallels to this basic narrative structure employing distinct but related terminologies. To mention just one, Recall Jesus' high priestly prayer at John 17. Jesus prays to the Father for the glory that was his before the world. The glory language here and the statement in John 16 that Jesus came forth from the Father obviously enough point us back to John's first chapter and to Christ possessing glory as the word with God in the beginning. The eschatological end of this narrative frame is given inseparably with an account of where those who read the gospel stand. They are those to whom the promise is made that the Father and Son will dwell in them, those who may become one even as Father and Son are one. Jesus prays that those who are his may come to be where he is and to see his glory. But this also points us back to John's first chapter, of course, where verse 14 tells us that we have seen that glory. And so Jesus' comments in John 17 about the time when his glory will be seen and when those who are his will be drawn toward unity in him are about the time of the church. 
So once again, the narrative framing that locates Christ's life and teaching begins with insistence that he comes from the Father and is not of the world. The framing at the other side of the picture, as it were, is Jesus' return to the glory that was eternally his. In the middle of the story are we, connected to Jesus both by attending to the events of his earthly ministry, but also as those among whom he now works. The language of glory, light, and seeing takes center stage, but the parallel with what we find in Hebrews in its narrative structure should be reasonably clear. Through attending to these parallel structures of narrative and to the overlapping terminologies and traditions invoked to express those structures, we gain some sense of a few features within the discursive space of the earliest Christian generations. Now, of course, I have offered a few comments about only one feature in this landscape, but I think a case could be made fairly easily that it is a vitally important feature. Indeed, were we to widen the set of texts on which we drew, we would see the same family relationships between narrative structures. Unfortunately, our earliest surviving non-canonical materials, such as the Gospel of Peter or the unknown Gospel of Papyrus Egerton II, are too fragmentary to tell us anything useful here. The Gospel of Thomas is a special case, but I'll pass over it for the moment. Someone will attack me about that later. But if we were also to include in our set of texts those that seem to date from the early 2nd century, such as 2nd Clement, Barnabas, or Ignatius' letters, I do not think it would take long to offer a fairly strong argument that we see reflected in those documents somewhat distinct terminologies, but a very similar narrative structure. But attending to conceptual features in this discursive space provides us with only a tiny part of the picture. The essay by Rowan Williams that I use as a point of departure makes claims not only about a basic narrative structure in our earliest Christian texts, but also about a drive toward communication between communities that seems to have marked this discursive space institutionally. While, obviously enough, we cannot speak of a unified institutional organization in this period, we do see complex networks of communication between Christian communities, some resulting from, the, from relationships of dependence on a missionary founder, others resulting from what seemed to have been a felt need just for communication. Obviously enough, these networks are revealed in the Pauline corpus, but they may be traced well into the second century. Thus, the genre of the letter occupies a central place in the literature of the early second century. We have, for example, the letters of Clement, Ignatius, Polycarp's letter, and we know of the existence of a number of other writers whose texts are now lost. While in some cases these letters reveal to us communities in serious disagreement, it is noteworthy how often their writers adopt a tone of correction, assuming that they deal with disagreements within communities that might be resolved without breaking communication. An emergent marking of boundaries seems underway in this network of communities, but we still deal with a network for whose dispersed leaders communication seems to have been an important task. To emphasize the importance within Christian communities in the early second century of sustaining networks of communication and enables us also to point to an interesting parallel, inadvertently, I think, offered by Peter Lamper in his seminal study of Christians in Rome during the second century. One of Lamper's central concerns is to, to articulate 
what he calls the fractionation of the Roman Christian community, by which he means the manner in which Christians seem to have divided from a very early date into diverse small house churches through the city, possibly mapping onto the shape of the Roman Jewish community. I don't think he persuasively does that, but... Lamper does an excellent job of documenting what we know of the Christian community in Rome in the second century and of its theological diversity. And yet, and yet, even though he argues strongly and persuasively that there was no one Roman bishop exercising sole command of all of these communities until the last couple of decades of the second century, Lamper finds himself drawn to reflect at length on the extent to which these communities were able to act together in situations of dispute. That's why we have to do with significant diversity, and some of this diversity appears to be a social phenomenon resulting in distinct communities. In the period between Paul and the middle of the second century, we cannot also we cannot avoid tracing also significant centripetal forces between distinct communities in Rome. It is also perhaps worth adding here that while there is a significant trend of scholarship, the focus is mainly on identifying distinct conceptual traditions within earliest Christian literature. Thinking a little more broadly about early Christian discursive space has the effect of providing some pushback against this tendency, emphasizing instead that these distinct traditions not only contained parallel conceptual structures, but also that they existed within a social network of communities that seem to have been able to sustain significant and persistent interaction. Now, once again, I have focused on only a couple of features in order to show both the different dimensions of the task involved in speaking about early Christian discursive space and, that what, res- and what results is certainly unsatisfyingly thin. But it may be enough for the plausibility of my overall argument to, be- to appear by the end of the paper. Before moving on to think for a few minutes about discursive space inhabited by the so-called proto-Orthodox writers at the end of the second century, it's important to note that identifying fundamental common discussions and common structuring principles of a discursive space does not involve us in denying that there was dissension within these communities or in denying that there were groups within and soon without these networks who began to envision their fundamental narratives in rather different terms. All that we can say about the communication between communities in this period indicates that the boundaries were likely fuzzy, and fuzzy itself in a manner that will escape our ability to sketch. Nevertheless, if I am anywhere near right in my earlier assertion about the absence of developed Gnostic mythologies in the late first century, then it does seem likely that the conversations and traditions visible in the earliest Christian texts that survived to us can be described as representing the core discussions of earliest Christian thought. Let me now briefly look forward and offer some comments on the discursive space of proto-Orthodox Christians in the final decades of the second century. In order to show how I envisage continuity and change between these two periods, I'll focus only on the features of Christian discussion that I have so far considered. There is obviously enough a sleight of hand in doing this, without proving that these features are and remain central in both cases, but time demands we put a pin in that question for the moment. 
My first claim is that one of the most fundamental continuities we observe between the late first century and the proto-Orthodox is the centrality to the latter of the very same narrative structure that I spent some time identifying earlier. Allow me to point to some very small examples in just two writers, Irenaeus and Tertullian. The examples I pick on could be multiplied many times, and their importance lies in the frequency, in their frequency, and their fundamental role in the arguments of both writers. Let me note first Irenaeus' subtle use of Eucharistic language to create narratives that link the acts of creation and salvation and that locate the existence of his community as heading toward a final rest sustained by the continuing action of Christ. At the beginning of Against Terrace's Book 5, for example, Irenaeus emphasizes that just as the one Son and Lord grants creation to us, he saves through establishing the Eucharistic bread and wine as his body and blood, that body and blood through which he redeemed us, quoting Colossians 1.14 and alluding to a number of creation texts. His body and blood nourishes our fleshy bodies so that when they die, like cuttings from a vine which eventually bear their own fruit, they will rise despite decomposition. The nourishing of our bodies now and their rising from decomposition occurs because of the power of God. Again, quoting texts from 1 and 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, and Luke. And in that nourishing of our bodies, we see at work the Spirit and the Word who sustain the whole of creation from the beginning. The resurrection that we will undergo is a resurrection into the glory of God. This passage provides a tiny example of a frequent implicit narrative pattern The action of Christ in saving is linked to the act of creating. Because the same agent is at work, Christians find themselves in a narrative drawing them in a relationship to those foundational salvific events toward the eschaton. Moreover, the relationship is founded upon the continuing act and presence of Christ and the Spirit. With this passage, compare Tertullian's argument against Marcion. In books 4 and 5, Tertullian devotes a great deal of space to contradicting Marcion's exegesis, and he does so by exploring the thick typological relationships between Old and New Testaments. In order to show Christ, in a frequent phase in this text, is the Creator's Christ. For example, uh, against Marcion 5.7, he comments on 1 Corinthians, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. He says, Quote, the unleavened bread was therefore in the Creator's ordinance a figure of us Christians. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. But why is Christ our Passover sacrificed unless the Passover is a type of Christ in the similitude of the blood which saves and of the Lamb which is Christ? Why does the Apostle clothe both us and Christ with the symbols of the Creator's solemn rites unless they are related to us. When again, he warns us against fornication, he reveals the resurrection of the flesh. The body says he is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Unquote. So Christ is the creator's Christ, coming from him before all things, and all things in creation point toward him. In his incarnate work, the creator's Christ establishes rights and teaches in a way that enable us to grasp our relationship to him and the path down which we travel with his help toward the eschaton. In book four, Tertullian comments on Christ's institution of the Eucharist. 
Why does Christ say at Luke 22.15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you? It cannot be Tertullian jokes sarcastically just because Jesus likes lamb. Um, that's why Tertullian's much more fun to read than Irenaeus. Um, uh, down, Brigman, down. Um, rather, it was because Christ sought in the first place to fulfill prophecy and thus to reveal the meaning of Israel's scripture. But in the second place, Christ also creates figures and symbols out of himself that enable us to grasp the new mystery of our existence. Here these symbols identify Christ's actual body as the bread that gives us life now and until the end. Tertullian nicely rounds off the sarcasm by suggesting that if Christ did not have a real body, then he might as well have said that a melon was his body. Um, all Zwinglians should think on that. The formal parallel between the narrative structure apparent in all three of these examples, one from Irenaeus and two from Tertullian, is very similar to the narrative structures I pointed to in Hebrews and John. The persistent and clear presence of this narrative structure, I suspect, shows us why attempts to offer accounts of Christianity without it became so easily controversial, whether we are thinking of Marcion or of the various Gnostic mythologies of the second century. But there are also a number of significant differences when we think about the shape of the wider discursive space within which Irenaeus and Tertullian offer their narrative structures. One of the most important is the very form of the text from which I drew the examples. Each of these texts is an exegetical enterprise in which the texts of the emerging New Testament are treated as a corpus appropriately examined by close grammatical analysis. These writers assume then both that these texts are themselves appropriately parsed as scriptural and that the methods one uses for that process should be consciously adapted from Hellenistic traditions of literary analysis. Adopting these methods has significantly shaped the character of Christian speculation. Because, for example, the traditions of analysis on which Christian writers draw encourage the careful parsing of the meaning of individual words and terms, so do Christian writers of the period. I would even suggest that methodological assumptions of this nature have a significant effect on the way in which Christian writers make use of and often cannibalize non-Christian philosophical materials to fill out hints within the texts that they exegete. What we see in these methodological shifts, these shifts in discursive practice, is what in other terms might be termed the Hellenization of Christian thought. Ooh. There are very few scholars of this period left who think of the second century as one in which Christianity moves from being expressed in Semitic terms to being expressed in Greek terms, thank God. The complex continuities between Hellenized Jewish traditions and the thought world of an Irenaeus have rendered the idea far too blunt a tool. However, one of the most helpful discussions, I think, of the scholarship on this question in recent years is to be found in the work of Christoph Markschies. Markschies argues or suggest that there is only one context within which we can give the term Hellenization any precise sense. And this is with reference to the evolution in Alexandria of a school structure that mirrors ancient philosophical institutions, and subsequently the evolution of modes of Christian thinking that incorporate pre-Christian Hellenistic academic practice and styles of speculation. 
It is in this city, for example, that we can first trace Christians like Valentinus and Basilides teaching to a small circle like contemporary philosophers and producing texts that are most closely paralleled by contemporary philosophical commentary. And then later in the century and on into the third century, we see Clement and Origen shaping their own notions of how scripture is also the basis for a speculative comprehension of the cosmos and writing in other genres that consciously mirror non-Christian exemplars. Now, I think that Mark Sheets' emphasis is extremely helpful, but also too restrictive. The case of Alexandria is most certainly distinctive, but what we see in a number of other centers across the Mediterranean during the period between 160 and 220 is precisely a form of this, this, this Hellenization, but not one that is focused on the formation of particular institutions, but on the adaptation of modes of exegesis, styles of philosophical expansion and exposition that stem from a Hellenistic context. I would even suggest that while we certainly do see the rise of a new discourse of orthodoxy and heresy, what is really distinctive about the second century is the rise of an interpretive culture in which boundaries are more systematically explored and marked in a manner that stems precisely from the Christian adoption of of Hellenistic speculative and exegetical procedures. It is here also that some comments about patterns of communication and interaction between Christian communities are in order. While many traditional accounts of the second century focus on the rise of monoepiscopacy across the Mediterranean and then use this rise to mark a distinction between the beginning and the end of the century, I would like to highlight instead the continued presence of modes of informal communication between Christian communities. The letter continues to be a central feature of Christian literature during this period. At the same time, we can trace the outlines of a developing practice of exchange between communities. It is during the late 2nd and early 3rd century that we begin to see evidence of reasonably large-scale meetings of Christian leaders. And we also know of well-known figures who were occasionally called on as mediators in theological disputes. Origins, travels are perhaps the most well-known example. Christian communities during this period are certainly developing key elements of institutional structure, but equally importantly, we see them sustaining deep patterns of interchange and communication that closely parallel those of almost a century earlier. Our evidence from this latter period enables us to say a lot more about those patterns than we could say about the beginning of the second century, but there is a deep continuity. Perhaps, as Rowan Williams suggests when he highlights the importance of the letter to second century Christians, one thing we see in this persistent desire for communication is also part of the pressures that drove Christians from the very early stages to negotiation over boundaries. That negotiation wasn't an invention of proto-Orthodox writers, however much they witness to the process in an advanced stage. In conclusion, let me say the good news I have come to announce is this. We need not begin to narrate the development of Christianity during the second century by assuming that our main task is to document a diversity of Christianities. We may begin by thinking hard about the one complex tradition of continuity and change in Christianity that we can actually trace between the late 1st and late 2nd century. A tradition that takes us from the discursive space of Christianity between 60 and 120, and the discursive space of theologians such as Irenaeus, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, etc. 
But it is important to note that I do not think beginning with this story involves simply a denial of the complex pluralities and diversities that are also apparent in the century. And so if you ask what is the consequence of beginning with the story of continuity rather than simply with a picture of stark diversity, I would say that we should find ourselves drawn into a particular form of caution. In the first place, if my suggestion is right, that we need to think in a reasonably holistic manner about the developments and continuities apparent in a broad notion of early Christian discursive space, rather than focusing, for example, only on particular beliefs piecemeal, then we are faced with a task, theoretical and practical, of exploring both continuities and shifts in expression, a task of exploring how far all continuities in such contexts necessarily involve shifts, and a task of honing our theoretical categories ever more sharply. But in the second place, narrating development and continuity in the core of discursive space during this century should come with a caution about where we identify boundaries. My own sense is that working along the lines I have suggested actually allows us to take on board most of the excellent scholarly work that has been done in recent years to show that the work of establishing boundaries was undertaken in different ways throughout the century and was continually a work. Discovering where those boundaries lay was by no means obvious, even to those whose grasp of the core was most strong. I do think, and again I add this in the knowledge it may provoke just one or two questions, that the heat of the controversy over developed Valentinian or Sethian mythologies should not surprise us at all, and that the reaction of many that such mythologies were simply incompatible with the core features of Christian discursive space is actually unsurprising. But again, this does not mean that we have to assume anachronistically that the boundaries of that space were apparent at the time, nor that the struggle to define them was complex and long-running. The question remains then of whether we can speak of multiple Christianities or a pluriform Christianity during the second century. Almost everything, of course, depends on how you define your terms. But perhaps for an ad hoc solution that reflects the fragmentary nature of our evidence, we can actually do worse than look to the odd dynamic we see at work in the third book of Origins Contra Celsum. The work was written probably between 240 and 250, but responds to a work written possibly in the 170s. In the third book, Origen responds to Celsus's condemnation of the Christian tendency to disagree and to divide into factions. But we should note that Origen responds with two different rhetorical ploys. The first is to argue that factions or schools arise necessarily and unremarkably when the philosophically cultured differ over matters of exegesis. We should not be surprised, he says, if Christians do likewise. Now, this is a really neat move, of course, as it excuses difference by highlighting the intellectual power of Christian thinkers. But note that here Origen allows the name Christian a remarkably broad extent, most likely, I'd argue, covering both differences that he sees as sustainable in the academic debates of a unifying tradition and those which have already been community-breaking. His second rhetorical ploy is subsequently to accord some of these new groups distinct names and to identify distinct doctrines that separate them from the truth. Origen's account is obviously enough an apology for his own Christian community, but it perhaps suggests the need for a dual strategy in our own naming. Extending the term Christianity in the singular or plural forms is at times 
pedagogically useful and historically sensitive in dealing with some of the more hard-to-locate phenomena of the period. But the task of comparison is also both possible and, I think, necessary. We should, as historians, allow ourselves to explore how and whether we can speak of a core. And we should, as historians, allow ourselves to ask about how far the beliefs of a particular tradition accord or do not accord with that core. And so, while there is much that is lost to us about Christianity in the second century, I suggest that the attentive historian should be very wary of reading from that century only a smorgasbord of competing and now lost Christianities. Thank you. Lewis, I like very much your suggestion that there's a a real continuity from philosophical schools. Um, Along the lines of the two aspects of discursive space that you identified, the conversation at the conceptual level and then the social space sort of thing, would it be plausible to suggest that what we find in the figures of the second century really beginning with Justin, in a sense, Mm. is the appropriation of a philosophical mode as distinctively Christian. And that provided them with a a very different strategy of definition. I mean, it it seems to me this is very much along the lines of Origen's response to Kelsus. Mm. Um, So that people who were writing apocryphal acts Mm. um, were not in the least like them, or mm-hmm. people who were writing visionary mm-hmm. literature and so forth. All these mm-hmm. things were going on. The philosophical schools in their hierasis mm-hmm. always had the capacity of distinguishing conceptually and socially mm-hmm. because that's what they did, mm-hmm. basically. Excuse me, I have another call to take at this moment. <laughs> uh, I, I'm sorry. It's Luke's publisher. Give him a moment. <laughs> That's my question, whether this is really a distinctive strand Mm. rather than the whole Mm. bit. This is pretty good, because I've had somebody actually fall asleep in a lecture that I gave and then try and ask me a question, which is the the height of hubris. Unfortunately, it was a good question. Well, I've never had actually take a phone call during asking a question. That's brilliant. Um, And then leave for the damn answer. But but Luke and I love each other. the, I think Luke's question is a very good question. Um, I, th- I, think, I think, however, that I'd want to begin by saying, um, by going back to my point about Christoph Marxis. He, he wants to offer a very restrictive notion of what changes in the second century. So what changes is the emergence of this institution in Alexandria. There's one thing, and this is the place where you see the real adoption of what's there in Hellenistic philosophical schools, and that's Hellenization. Now, I think it's a clever idea because it gives the term Hellenization a useful concrete meaning rather than being entirely nebulous. But I think what it misses, it it, it misses what actually happens um, in other situations as well. Alexandria is a unique case. If you think about what happens with Irenaeus, and this is part of what I'm doing in the the book that I'm writing at the moment, what happens with Irenaeus and Justin Um, Well, in Justin, yes, you see the adoption of modes of philosophical discourse. 
that, I, that uh, sort of parallel what's going to happen in Alexandria, although in a, a more slightly ephemeral way, as far as we know. Um, but one thing that both Justin and Irenaeus share, even though Irenaeus doesn't have these philosophical modes, is a conceptual form of exegesis that comes directly out of you know, things like Homeric scholarship, where you're, you're parsing words and you're using philosophical and quasi-scientific material to tease out what the word actually means. And you're adopting what might you call it, a sort of academic practice and trying to claim the cultural capital of that academic practice. And that seems to me the distinctive act that we can usefully, if we want to, call Hellenization. Alexandria presents a particular case of that, but it seems to me it's widespread across the late 2nd century. Now, my argument, which is not in this paper, but is what I'm trying to do in the book, is to ask, well, why does that happen? Now, as far as I can see, the standard argument for that has been simply, well, it was inevitable. Christians become smart and more wealthy, therefore they do what their non-Christian forebears are doing. You know, you want to be culturally smart, you talk like a philosopher, or you do sort of Hellenistic American exegesis. Well, I think that, that, I think there's certainly plausibility in that, but there's something else happening which is directly related to your question. The first people uh, that we know of who are extensively picking up on these tactics, both the philosophical ones and the sort of literary commentary ones, are Valentinians. They're actually writers whose mythologies are very distinct, I think, from Christian narrative structures, uh, although that's where they begin. But what they're doing is producing a body of work which attempts to justify itself by claiming itself to be philosophically and academically smart. So in response, what you have is people like Irenaeus and Clement who consciously pick up on these methods, basically to say, no, that cultural capital is ours, not yours. Um, so that, that seems to be, to me, the immediate provocation for Christians suddenly to adopt these materials. I mean, otherwise, one of the most interesting differences between Justin and Irenaeus is why, in 25 years, do you, have, do you go from Justin, who almost never applies these techniques to any text that will count as a New Testament, to someone who does it on every single page? Um, well, I think it's in part because Irenaeus wants to say, no, in order to be a good reader in this culture, you must read like this. So that helps to promote this Hellenization. But once that's provoked, then this, the, the production of visionary-type texts more and more moves to the outskirts of what counts as you know, core, definable Christian practice, I suspect. Steve. I just want to make sure that I'm understanding your argument. Mm. The distinction between plurality and multiple Christianities is the positing of some sort of consistent core that extends 150 years, say. Mm. So I kept listening for the core, and the core is actually a rhetorical strategy. It's not a substance. It would be if I have this right, mm. to argue that there's really no distinction between contemporary Reaganites and <laughs> 1980 Reaganites because they argue in the same way, mm. even though what they actually say are diametrically opposed to one another. So that the continuity isn't what they're saying, but how they're saying it. And at that level, 
it strikes me that's a pretty abstract notion of continuity. So I may be missing what you're telling me, but that's what I heard. Okay. I, I think there are, I mean, I want to say two things to that. The first is uh, no. No, I didn't, I didn't hear you correctly. Yeah, I don't think you, I don't think you heard me correctly at one, at one level. I, I think that the continuity... And, I, and, I'm a, and, and again, I've only identified one bit of continuity. There's a whole you know, world more that needs to be spoken about. But the point of continuity that, that's here identified is not a rhetorical ploy, but a fairly standard narrative structure that offers an account of the ways in which Christians stand in relationship to Christ. That, that's yeah, but the abstraction of it is there's a founding figure who started something, and there's an end point for us. You can make... That's the statement... But, I don't, think, but I, don't think that, I don't think that would be a useful abstraction because what's continuous is there was this particular founding figure who was also, in some sense, the creator and who still works now towards a particular end. So it's a fairly dense narrative structure embedded in a number of different sort of conceptual forms. And the interesting thing about that narrative structure is that it has impact on a number of other different dimensions of, sort of Christian space so, to give you a tiny example that I didn't bring up in this paper, is why is it that Christians, at a certain point, do treat the Gospels as a historical record? Uh, at one level, it must be defensive against those who allegorize them, but at another level, I think it's actually more interesting than that, because what, what you have is a sense that relationship to an actual historical event is significant. So therefore, when you look at someone, uh, when you look at distinct points, like you've got a, a Papias who's clearly concerned with establishing Gospels as historical documents, which have a historical-like veracity, whether or not we find it plausible, and you've got Justin thinking of them as memoirs and treating them as historical texts, and you've got Irenaeus and the rest thinking that they are historical texts. Well, one reason for that discourse taking hold in Christianity is not just a defensive one, but it's because of the way in which they conceive of their relationship to a founder with a particular notion of historicity. It matters to them um, in a way that it simply doesn't matter to a Valentinus or a Basilides. Yes, it certainly is a Macintyre. I mean, that, but, that, but that goes back to um, one of the reasons I like this notion of discursive space is precisely because it offers you a number of ways to think about you know, power and development and competition in it. And for someone like Kalal Assad who you know, wants to draw a Macintyre, power is a necessity, but not necessarily a bad thing. So it does something good. Um, and, you know, and also for someone who's going to draw on Habermas or someone. But I think that, that that's quite interesting because then you can talk about the development of a discursive tradition in which there is a substantive continuity in terms of narrative structure. You can suggest, um, and in some cases I think demonstrate, ways in which that narrative structure emphasizes other areas of discourse um, and trace something of the shifts and continuities while recognizing that we don't necessarily know all of what's going on, but we're not in the position of needing to stigmatize the development as necessarily an exercise of power and nasty. Because right. that, that seems to me, just, it's just an overly simplistic tactic. Um. 
Yeah, Arun Jones, I teach uh, world evangelism. Uh, is there uh, evidence from that you know of from um, West Asia, specifically from Aramaic or Persian material that uh, plays into your argument? Uh, no. Or not? Okay. No, I, don't, I mean, I think that we know, we, we, we know so little, especially about the origins of uh, Syriac-speaking Christianity. There's nothing useful that you can say about this period. I mean, you might, you, you might offer a very flowery, sophisticated version of what's going on in, in texts like the Odes of Solomon, but, you know, you'll find five other scholars who simply disagree with you because we just don't have evidence, so we can say virtually nothing about it at that, at that point, I think. By the next century, we certainly we do, right? So. I don't think we, we we can't really say anything about the sorts of discussions that happen in Syriac Christianity. I think until well into uh, the fourth century. Fourth century with Ephraim and people. I yeah, yes. I mean, you you can certainly identify one or two earlier texts. So you can have a look at Bardasanes. But what do you get out of that? What you get is someone who has a text in Syriac who is extremely conversant with Greek discussions about providence. It doesn't tell you anything about that particular culture. I think. Um, so I don't think you can talk much about Syriac Christianity in a, in a useful way, in the sort of model that I want to offer until well into the 4th century. I mean, that's an example where we just have to say we don't know about that stuff, you know. And I think that's better than trying to overly systematize fragments of evidence. Luke. Okay. Unless there's somebody else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is it okay? So I've got to take a call, so just carry on. <laughs> I apologize for that. I'm sorry. <laughs> What, what bases uh, your thought about uh, Valentinus in particular um, as using those exegetical techniques that would stimulate that sort of response? What do you have in mind when you oh, think okay. of him? That, that's a lovely question. What happens? Well, Valent I think Valentinians are the most interesting uh, example because of a you know, group like this in the second century because we can trace continuity and development within that action different group. different than the Sethians. That's, that's yeah, okay. So, okay. so my, my perception of that is really to add a few comments to what Christoph Marxis has done, which involves first saying there's a huge difference between what Valentinus does in the sort of 140 to 160 period and what later Valentinians do 30, 40 years later. Um, what I would notice, what I'd add to that discussion is one interesting difference is if you look at the surviving fragments of Valentinus, no, there's not a lot, but what does his exegesis look like? Well, his exegesis, it seems to me, finds the closest parallels in someone like Alexander of Aphrodisias, in someone who, who's a philosophical exegete, because you find this sort of expository, not parsing of words, but expository discussion of different ways in which you might take this text, showing how it points towards a certain you know, extra-mythological structure, but there's not too much of that. It's like reading an Aristotelian commentator. If you look 25 years later to a Heraclean or to the fragment of Ptolemy, if it is, that Irenaeus quotes, you've got detailed literary commentary on a text in which you, you parse sentence structure, words, phrases, blah, blah, blah. Um, so those are, quite, those are quite different. And I think what happens with, with Valentinus is he's someone who's much more like a Justin, who's adopting a sort of philosophical mode, but later commentators are attempting to justify their mythical reading in precisely the ways that you might justify an allegorical reading of a Homeric text um, by using much more complex terms of literary analysis. So you've got two quite different models. But it's the latter kind 
that stimulates someone like Irenaeus. You know, when Irenaeus says Valentinians are nasty exegetes, the quotation he gives you is from sort of second, third generation Valentinians, you know, parsing the prologue to John. And, you know, Heraclian the same. And, it, and it's that which forces an Irenaeus to say, no, these texts are literal, quasi-historical texts, and we should have command of those techniques, not you. And I, I, mean, I want to argue that that reflects an existing debate in pre-Christian Hellenistic culture well, I mean, as it's, well. It's, I mean, the, it's the debate between the Epicureans and the Platonists yeah, and, and yeah, so forth. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, so you have this sort of common set of literary critical methods, but then you have a sort of pro- and anti-allegorical use of them, and second-generation Valentinian authors pick up on that pro-allegorical use of them to say, actually, we, our allegories are based on you know, culturally significant techniques for reading this text, so we'll turn the New Testament into this allegorical resource. Irenaeus just draws on the other existing rhetoric to punch them back. Um, but it's not simply an invention, because I think there is a reason why he wants to make, as it were, of New Testament texts, historical records as well as anything else, because that's deeply embedded, I think, in the Christian psyche about itself, narrative structures about itself. So I, I don't know um, uh, the, the, uh, the secondary source, but I mean, is, is, I mean, is the thrust of your argument, well, one thrust of your argument here, that Hellenization is an acceptable term if it's controlled in terms of form but not in content? That, that's would be the break with somebody like Harnack classically, that, there's, there's the, that the content stays fundamentally constant. Uh, a, a association of Jesus with creation, Jesus is a specific historical figure with creation, present activity leading to an eschaton. That we can trace, can, that we can trace continuity. There's no Hellenization there. That's, that's, that's the core all the way through. There is Hellenization in terms of rhetorical strategies for making that, uh, for, just for uh, making that publicly available and defended. Is that? I mean, yeah, I, mean, I, mean, I, mean, I think that's sort of right. Handed, but I'm trying to... Yeah, the one, extra thing, the one extra thing I'd want to add to that is that you know, one, one reason why older notions of Hellenization, which relied on a sort of Greek-Semitic difference, yeah. fell out of favor, was the obvious connection between the appearance of um, themes within Hellenized Judaism that are exactly the same as those that Irenaeus wants to worry about when he talks about word language. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's continuity there. If you're going to give Hellenization a useful meaning, and if there's another one, that'd be fine... Yeah. Uh, and if you want to mark what really distinguishes Christians of that period from later, it is, I think, um, the way in which they've adopted certain sorts of Hellenistic, with a much more precise meaning, discursive practice. Um, now, there's, there's obviously some sort of continuity of the form, sort of complex to much more simple, between what you find with, say, Paul's use of rhetoric and what's going on in Irenaeus. So there's, they're, not, they're not simply distinct, but there is a point at which adopting those modes of discourse forever shapes what Christian doctrine, what, what Christian doctrinal discourse will be. And it seems to me useful to, enable, to enable, label that. And, it's, and I think it's useful in part because it forces a discussion away from people who still want to think in terms of Greek versus Semitic yeah. terms. Because um, that, I mean, that's still pretty common, although it's not common amongst scholars of the second century. But so trying to name Hellenization as something much more concrete opens that up for discussion. It may be useful. <laughs> yeah, quick, run. Okay, so I'll preface this by saying I don't think you can give me an answer that's going to satisfy me. Um, so 
I'm going to stop so, nagging myself yeah. with it and nag you with it. Yeah, I'm going to ask you a question, but I'm not, I don't think you can answer it. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, great. Um, to what, what you're basically saying is that there's continuity, and I'm sympathetic to this statement. Yeah. There's continuity, but within that continuity, there's diversity. Yeah. Mm. Right? Mm. But how much diversity can continuity bear until it becomes discontinuous? <laughs> because you you start out by say, you, I mean you started out by saying you know if we if we take away this understanding of Gnostics mm. stuff preceding you know late second century stuff, then we have a basis for saying that there's continuity. Mm. But you can also say, let's think about Christology mm. and compare Shepherd to Justin mm -hmm. to Irenaeus yeah. to yeah. the Ebionites, yeah. right? Yeah. And say, well, look, these are these differences are also um, fundamentally governed to some extent by their influence with Jewish traditions that receive Jewish patterns of thinking. So that'd be another way of positing a source of discontinuity. Yeah. So to how helpful, I mean, I, I think you're correct in needing to push back, mm. right? Mm. But how much is this more a swing of the pendulum to the other side rather than finding the middle ground? Well, it depends. I mean, I think that one of, the, one of the problems is trying to have a, a sufficiently theoretically dense notion of what you mean by diversity. I mean, that's one of the interesting things about, I think, the sort of trendy scholarship on the second century that I push back against, is it, 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 it has a tendency to say some form of observed diversity means distinct communities. Um, well, that's actually, that, but that's no more subtle than saying one form of continuity means it's damn well always the same. Um, so part of the problem, I think, is to find ways, and I don't have that much to say about this yet, how do you think about forms of diversity that are actually conceived as, a, as reparable or as occurring within a community in comparison to those that are conceived as simply requiring conversion? Um, so, I mean, you certainly have debates, and I, and I think that you know, part of my argument would be around the whole, what does the rule of faith actually do? One of the most interesting things about the way the rule of faith is used by people like Irenaeus and Tertullian is actually the shortness of it. That it, it, that it clearly is intended to encompass discussions of which they all know, but take quite different positions on. Yeah, and it changes. It changes, it changes its versions, and like, I, I think especially Christology is one of the most interesting aspects because the sort of you know, middle discussions of what we mean by word or son or whatever are remarkably austere. Um, in authors, you know, like Irenaeus, you know, at a certain point, he knows perfectly well aware that there's serious discussion about this, that what he says is remarkably different from what Justin says, vice versa. But his way of conceiving of the rule at that point, I think it demands us to, to recognize that he acknowledges a certain amount of debate and discussion, but that, that's not sort of community-destroying at that point. Um, how, do, how do we theorize those sorts of discussions that are recognized at that particular time as okay, but later will not be so? Right, because so he accepts Justin yeah. and recognizes that he doesn't want to push back too hard. Yeah. But then he very much is um, not happy with the email conception. Yeah. But, there, I mean, there's still a great deal of similarity between these two accounts. So, as far as, how what do we make a price being present in this person? Yeah. So, how do you find community? Where are the limits? Hmm. Well, I don't think, they, but they don't necessarily know. Um, I don't, 
I mean, I, but I think part, part, of the, part of the struggle is that until we've thought more about this, if we can, um, it's possible for us to sustain a discussion about continuity and recognize that the boundaries remain remarkably difficult for us to systematize, in part because they do for an Irenaeus or a Justin. Um, it's all very well to say, no, no, he wants to sort of mark orthodoxy as this great apostolic thing summarizing the rule of faith. But I think that's far too simple a picture of what he knows himself to be capable of doing. Um, I mean, I think, you know, in David Brackey's recent book about Gnostics, one of his most interesting little asides is to say, of course, when Irenaeus says that there are many different forms of Gnostics, he can't be entirely untrue because his readers would simply say, well, that, that doesn't reflect reality. But that comment goes, it goes exactly, sorry, that comment must be also taken when Irenaeus says, everyone believes the rule of faith and it's this. Now, I think that that's where you see the careful um, presentation of a rule of faith. So it has a sort of anti-Gnostic intent, and yet it also encompasses discussions that he knows to be really quite heated and significant. But for him, they're not, they're not ones which are of the same order of the distinction between him and others. So it, it, it's a very difficult question. I don't quite know how we do that, but I think not being able to to thematize exactly what types of diversity there are and are not, does not stop us also talking about continuity. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. So. Yeah. Okay. Uh, hold on to this. We've got to be really, this really has to be the absolutely ultimate, ultimate. <laughs> Luce, you began to talk about, um, well, well, Eucharistic theology, but what about practice? I mean, practice is, mm. is part of the debate, but you certainly begin to see in the second century around debates, for example, uh, between the quartodecimans and yeah. you know, the Roman position yeah. and so forth. So even though there were diversities of practice, this desire, or at least some desire, you know, to think towards continuity, not just as continuing the tradition of the apostles per se, but some mm -hmm. sort of notion that we need to continue to be in fellowship with each mm -hmm. other in our mm -hmm. practices. Just by the third century, certainly, we'll we will see in debates about whose baptisms do we recognize, mm -hmm. you know. So those sorts of debates about practice complicate, but also might be a, you know, offer some resources in thinking about how we think about what it means to be continuous mm. in a tradition without defaulting to think that it's really all about ideas. That mm. It also contains... No, I think that's exactly right, yeah. I, I, I think that's right. I mean, I, I've just been thinking a lot recently about um, what models of sort of mutual interaction you have at the beginning and the end of the, the, the second century, simply because that, as I said, I sort of hinted out here, it seems to me that the whole rise of mono-episcopacy is sort of a red herring. Uh, it's interesting, it's not uninteresting, but it doesn't tell you much about similarities and difference in the way that Christian communities interact, and that's much more interesting. I, I, su I suspect that the, the development of practice is also really significant. Um, the trouble is finding the points of clarity at beginning and end where you can have that discussion. And I think, you know, part of the unacknowledged work that I'm doing here by, by talking about beginning and end is not talking about the middle because of the sheer difficulty of dating anything and of showing development in the sort of, you know, sort of 140 to, to 170 period. What do you do with the middle of the century? It's, it's, it's just difficult. But you can, I think, usefully talk about beginning and end. Um, once you get into the third century, there's just so much more you can say about questions, especially about baptism. Um, well, but I admit uh, this is a work in progress. So. Owing to the hour, we've already lost some uh, auditors, but um, yeah. uh, 
offer our expressions of thanks for a simulating paper and good discussion. So thank you. The preceding program is copyrighted by Emory University.